Well, turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, we're continuing, of course, our study of the Gospel of Luke. And we're seeing this great book, and Luke presents Jesus as the perfect man. He is the Son of God, who is the Savior, the substitute, and the sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And for these last few weeks, we have been seeing the background of the birth and the early days of the life of Christ. As we move into chapter 3, we move a number of years ahead. If you go back to the birth of Christ, it's about 30 years. If you go back to last week when we saw him when he was 12 years old, it's about 18 years. We move into the future. Uh, from from between chapter 2 and chapter 3. We see in the beginning of the ministry of both John the Baptist and Jesus. This morning we see John. He's about 30 years old. He's in the wilderness and he's proclaiming a message to the nation of Israel. We'll see how it is. We'll see what, what it means and how it fits together. The crowds are coming out to see him. What is he doing? He declares he is the one that Isaiah spoke about. He says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. The Messiah is here. The King and Savior is on the earth. As we studied this morning, Luke gives us a great deal of detail, a really background. He tells us about when all this happened. He wants us to know when and where and who as all of this fits together. So may we be excited about the passage as we study it. We'll get some background, get a little understanding of the world at that time, what, all, what, what was going on. And we also see the beginning of the ministry of John. Well, think about this. The Bible is such a special book. The Word of God given to us in a written form. We talk about Revelation as where God makes Himself known. Inspiration is where God makes Himself known in a written form. This is what we have, the inspired Word of God. The Bible is one book, but it's 66 books. It's all coming together, giving us God's perfect plan. He shows us how the perfect God brings sinful man back to Himself using His Son, Jesus Christ. We divide the Bible, of course, we know this, into two big sections, Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament ends with a prophet named Malachi. He proclaims that one day God would send a forerunner to go before the Messiah. People were looking for this forerunner. They were looking for the Messiah, the seed of woman, the son of David, the one who is the Christ. From the end of the Old Testament to where we are in our study now, about 400 years have passed. And there has been no revelation from God. I mean, the last guy was Malachi saying, behold, I'm going to send the forerunner. And then that's it. Scholars call this the 400 silent years. What was God doing? Had he forgotten his promises? Well, as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke, this morning we see God breaks the silence. John the Baptist appears in the wilderness, this man, 30-year-old man, looking funny, all dressed in this thing, long hair, never has cut his hair in his life. He's been a Nazarite since his birth. I mean, he's never cut his hair. Think what that would look like. People thought he was some prophet of God. That's what he was. They thought maybe he might be the Messiah. And he's, in the, he's a voice crying in the wilderness. He's saying, make the way for the Savior. We have a break in the silence. And John begins to announce the coming of the Messiah. And, and he says, listen, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes. He points the way. This morning, as we move to Luke chapter 3, we see the beginning of the ministry of, of John, and the crowds are out there, and, and people believe, because he's telling them to repent, which is a change of mind, and we're going to talk about that more in a minute, and they come out there, and they want to be baptized, because he was baptizing, and baptism is always for believers, and so he wants them to identify with the King, the Messiah, and the Savior. 
And we're going to see what he says to these people when they come out there. And we want to gain an understanding not only of the ministry of John, but then we see Jesus who he points to. And we'll actually get into the aspect of Jesus more next week. As we begin, let's remember where we are. We're in the early days of the life of Christ. At 12 years old, we saw he went to Jerusalem for Passover. He went to the temple and he stayed there. And he met right in the middle where all these, these teachers were. And they were amazed by him because he was asking them questions and he was giving them answers. And when his mom and daddy showed up and they said, what are you doing? And he said, you know, I had to be about the things of my father. And that's what he was saying. He knew he was the son of God. He knew what he was doing. Eighteen years have passed since that event. As we begin chapter 3. And John breaks the silence. Luke gives us a special time and, and the beginning of the ministries. Before we get into the verses, I, I want to think, let's think about two different things. We want to look at the Roman world and the Jewish world. I want you to just think about it for a second because to understand what's going on, you have to understand the, the world. Let's think about first the Roman world. And the Roman world... Um, Romans had defeated everyone. Everyone in what they call the known world. They had defeated them. They had put them under subjugation. They had defeated the nations around them. They brought about what was called Pax Romanus, which means the peace of Rome. They were led by an emperor named Tiberius Caesar. He was an evil man, as many of their leaders were. The land of Israel was under the subjection and dominion of Rome. And, and, and if you remember that, when Jesus was born, there was that man named Herod the Great. He was the one that killed all the little boy babies two years old and under. After he died, the land was divided among all of his sons. In fact, he had four or five sons, but it was divided among three of those sons. Herod's sons ruled the region. So some 30 years after the birth of Christ, there is the Roman emperor, and then there's the sons of Herod who are ruling over the land of Israel. Let's think about the Jewish world for just a second. The Jewish nation hated the Romans. They hated being in subjection. They hated being under the dominion of another people. In fact, ever since the captivity, since the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and the Greco-Macedonians and now the Romans, it's just been nation after nation controlling Israel. And you can see them saying, when will God deliver us from these people? When is the Savior coming? And see, for them, sometimes when they thought of Savior, they didn't think of Savior from sin. They thought of deliverance from the enemy. And so if you talk to the Jewish person at this time and said, what about the son of David? Son of David is the king, the Messiah. They would say, son of David is going to come and he's going to whip all these Romans. And we're going to take over our land. We're going to be okay. The Jewish leaders at this time had divided themselves in a number of religious groups. Two of the most famous ones that you hear of are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. They had the privilege. Romans were pretty smart. They said, look, Herod's, Herod's sons and Pontius Pilate and all these people are going to rule this area. But we'll let you Jewish people sort of handle your own religious affairs. And so they had the high priest and you had all of that. Now, from a religious point of view, Romans, they believed in many gods. They had the pantheon of gods. And they were looking for something. And the sad thing about it is they looked at their gods and what their gods were they were just big human beings. I mean, their gods were supposed to be gods, but their gods got mad and you know, did all this stuff. They were nothing more than big people, powerful people. And so if you ask the Roman, what about God, they go, which one? We got a bunch of them, and they don't even know what they're doing. But for the Jews, they were looking for a savior, someone to deliver them from the power of Rome. The legalism of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of that group had frustrated the people. 
And they could see these people walking, these, these religious leaders with these long robes coming into the place, blowing trumpets, looking good, thinking they're better than everybody else. And, and these average guy that says, I can't be that good. What are we going to do? How are we going to ever get to God? They were all frustrated. The time was ripe for the Savior of the world. That's why Galatians 4, 4 says, In the fullness of time, God brought forth His Son. Fullness of time literally means at exactly the right time. The world is ready for a Savior when Jesus comes. God breaks the silence. He sends the forerunner to make known this coming Messiah. Now, look how it begins. Luke gives us details of where, when, and where, and all this. Let me give you some names. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, that's the emperor, and then there was Pontius Pilate, who was governor of Judea. There was Herod, a tetrarch of Galilee. That's one of Herod the Great's sons. And there was another named Philip. He was a tetrarch. We'll talk about that in a minute. And there was this guy named Lysisius, which we know nothing about. And then he lists in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. We'll go over that in just a second. But here is this Roman world and their leaders. The first one is Tiberius Caesar. And as I said a while ago, he ruled from 14 A.D. to 37 A.D. So he was the emperor when Jesus was crucified. He was known as an evil, violent man. So that was not the man you wanted to mess with. He is the emperor. Followed by another man which is named Pontius Pilate. Notice it says, uh, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Now, governor of Judea, he, had, he was over the region of the southern part of Israel, and it was Jerusalem. So it was big. He had the main city there. Pilate is the famous man that you remember when Jesus was tried, and they brought him before Pontius Pilate. One of Herod's sons used to rule that region. His name was Archelaus, but he was so bad they removed him and put Pontius Pilate there when you look at Pontius Pilate you see in the scripture and we'll see it later on he is a weak man because he didn't know how to handle the Jewish people he wants to keep them happy because if they're uproars with the Jewish people the Romans will come take his place away but he wants to show them who's boss and so sometimes Pilate will go near the temple and he'll put Roman symbols up in the temple make all the Jewish people really mad He's saying, I just want you to know I'm in control. But he wasn't. You know what Pilate asked Jesus? He said to Jesus, he said, don't you know I have the right to put you to death or let you go? And Jesus said, if it wasn't given to you from God, you have no power whatsoever. There's a third man, Herod the Tetrarch. Tetrarch means a ruler of a fourth. It became just a symbol name because actually the land was divided into the three sections. So you could have called him Herod, the, the guy who rules three, but he, he was called the Tetrarch. He was, his name, real name was Herod Antipas. He, he controlled the northern part of Israel and the western part. He was the son of Herod the Great. He had a brother named Philip. That's the next one. Philip, son of Herod the Great. He's listed here. He was a Tetrarch as well. He had the eastern part. And then the last guy, I don't know if I have, yeah, I have him last. Yes, and here he is. He's the Tetrarch of Abilene. Abilene was near... Damascus, that part of the world. These were the Roman leaders. You've got the, the emperor, the sons of Herod, Pilate, the governor. Now, from here, Luke says, okay, I got you the Roman people. Now let me give you the Jewish people. Look at verse 2. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. He says, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The high priest were, they, there's two. And you say, two? Well, there's not supposed to be two. Annas and Caiaphas. We all know that when you go back to the time of Moses, Moses' brother it was Aaron. And Aaron became the first high priest of Israel. High 
high priest was to rule for life. When he died, his oldest son would become the high priest. And then when he died, his oldest son would become the high priest. That's how it's supposed to work. By the time you get to the time that we're studying now of the Romans, the Romans said, we're going to tell you Jewish people what to do. We'll appoint the high priest. So instead of it being for life, and instead of it being the son who follows, the Romans decided who was high priest. That went over real well with the Jewish people. Well, the Romans had assigned this man by the name of Annas as high priest. He ruled from 7 to 14 A.D., and then they removed him, and they had five others go in and out of there. And finally, they chose one more, a man by the name of Caiaphas, who was actually the son-in-law of Annas. The Jewish people still saw Annas as the leader and Caiaphas as a leader as well. That's why Luke writes it and says, in the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. As far as the Romans were concerned, Caiaphas was the high priest. As far as the Jewish people were concerned, it was both Annas and Caiaphas. That's the leaders. When Jesus was tried, we'll study it later on, we'll get toward the end. When Jesus was tried, he was first taken to Annas and then taken to Caiaphas. It says, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, I want you to understand what the religious world was like for the Jewish world. There were these groups... The religious groups, first of all, Pharisees. We've all heard of them. In fact, every time we hear the word Pharisees, we think negative. We say, oh, you don't want to be a Pharisee. No. Well, the Pharisees started when the Jewish people came back from captivity. They were in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. And when they came back under the the Medo-Persian rule, when they came back, there were a group of men that said, never again are we going to let what happened to us. Because the nation of Israel turned away from God and His Word. That's why they went into captivity. So a group of men formed together a group called the Pharisees, which means the separatists. They're going to separate themselves out to the Bible, and they're going to live by the Bible. Did that sound? pretty good it did but what happened is they became legalist and they added and they had all their rules and instead of looking to the scripture as the key they had all the things you could do and couldn't do you realize that on the sabbath day if you got mud on you one of the rules were you had to wait till it dried and then you could hit three times to see if you could get the mud off that's all if you hit four times you worked on the sabbath that was the kind of rules these people lived under They were the Pharisees. The second group were the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees were what we call the liberal group. They looked at the Bible, but they didn't believe in resurrection or angels. They didn't believe in any of that. Now the high priest was from the group of the Sadducees. Can you imagine the high priest of Israel not believing in angels or resurrection? But they were the legalist type. They were wealthy people. They were the liberal end of it. The third group is called the Herodians. These were people that wanted the family of Herod in power because they thought if Herod's family is in power, at least we know what's happening, so put them in power. There was a fourth group. They were called the Essenes. You may have heard of them. Some people think John the Baptist was an Essene. He was not. The Essenes lived out in the region near the Dead Sea, uh, the Dead Sea, uh, in the Qumran area, and they were they were really weird. Let me put it this way. They didn't have anything to do with the Jewish people. They didn't have anything to do with the Roman people. They were Jewish people, but they didn't recognize any of the Jewish leadership. And they said, we do our own thing. We have our own writings. Their writings, we found them. They're called the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were the writings of these people. And they were looking for the Messiah, but they had nothing to do with the, the leadership of Israel. 
And then there was one last group that we want to think about. They're called the Zealots. The Zealots hated the Romans so much that they were like guerrilla warfare. What they would do is they would bind, you know, bound together, and they had little knives called sacries. They had little knives about this long. They would get into crowds where the Romans were, and they would take out that knife, and they'd come up behind somebody, and they'd stab them, and then they'd slip away, and they'd kill people. That, that was their thing. They were zealots. They called themselves the zealots for Israel. Now, the head of the Romans, you ever thought about Jesus' group of men? He had Levi, who was a what? What was his job? He's a tax collector, right? And it was hated by the Jewish people. And you had Simon the Zealot. You had a Zealot and a tax collector with Jesus 12. Immediately, they didn't even like each other. Because the Zealot said, if I ever got a chance, I'd kill Matthew. Jesus said, don't do, don't do that. Don't do that. Okay. <laughs> So we got a little background on what it was like then. Notice it says, In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, verse 2, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. The word of God. The, word of God, the, the Greek word for word here means a spoken word. It has an idea of a message. A specific message comes to John. Notice where he is. He's in the wilderness. Luke chapter 1, verse 80, when we talked about John the Baptist, it said that he grew up and lived in the wilderness until his public appearance. He did not live in a city. He was not serving as a priest. Remember, his father as a priest at age 25 he should have gone to the temple and begin training as a priest and at age 30 he would become a priest he didn't do that he stayed out in the wilderness because God has a ministry for him a different ministry in fact Luke chapter 1 verse 76 says that he would be a prophet of the most high God is going to break the silence the last prophet was Malachi and now we're going to have 400 years and then suddenly there's a new prophet and his name is John. And he's called John the Baptizing One. We call him John the Baptist, but literally he's called the Baptizing One because people came out to him to be baptized. And we're going to talk about why, why did people come out to be baptized. Well, what did this man look like? I mentioned it a while ago. From birth, he was a Nazarite. A Nazarite vow was that he never touched anything with wine or grapes. He never touched a dead body. And he never cut his hair. Now, 30-year-old man, never cutting his hair. He's described as wearing this, this, Matthew says he got this coat of camel hair. When people saw him, it was just a big bushy guy, right? I mean, they saw this big guy. And a lot of them immediately said, that's Elijah. Because Elijah was a Nazarite too, see? And they saw him and they said, that must be Elijah come back from the dead. It must be Elijah. Well, who could it be? Because Elijah was taken up and maybe he's appeared again. Why in the wilderness? Isaiah 40 said that when the forerunner of the Messiah comes, he will be found in the wilderness. A voice crying in the wilderness. Notice what it says. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. The, the message of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. In the Gospel of Matthew tells us that he was saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So people get so confused because people think repent means to turn from sin. It does not. It means a change of mind. Repent comes from two Greek words put together. Metaneos. Metaneo is the Greek word for repent. Meta means after. Naos means mind. It means an aftermind or an afterthought. It literally means a change of mind. When, when Matthew records the message of John the Baptist, he says, repent, change your mind, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's message to Israel was, change your mind of what you've been looking at and trusting the Messiah is on the earth, the King is on the earth. 
Now Luke records some other things that John said. He has a little different message. We'll see how it fits together. Notice verse 2 again. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And he came in all the district around the Jordan preaching. The word preaching means proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now that kind of confuses people, but baptism is an identification. Baptism is for believers. He was preaching that you get identified for those who had repented and received forgiveness of sins. A change of mind, a belief in the Messiah and the Savior that the King was on the earth would result in forgiveness of sins. Now this is what he's saying. He's saying here, he came out there because he was identifying people. See, baptism, understand this, baptism is always for believers. It's not for unbelievers. Believers get baptized. John is saying, if you have changed your mind and received the forgiveness of sins, then I want you to come out here and I will baptize you so you can identify with the king. That's what he's saying. So he was preaching this baptism, this this identification of a change of mind which results in the forgiveness of sins. The change of mind is what results in the forgiveness of sins. He wanted the nation of Israel to change because, see, they were looking for something to, to deal with the Romans. And he's saying, you need to change your mind and realize the Messiah is here. And when you believe in the Messiah, you will receive forgiveness of sins. The Gospel of John, this this book continually over and over emphasizes forgiveness of sins. The Gospel of John over and over emphasizes eternal life. Ninety-eight times in the Gospel of John, he says you receive eternal life by faith. The Gospel of Luke over and over talks about receiving forgiveness of sins. Both happen when you believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. So he's saying to them, look, come to me, be identified with the King. When you have changed your mind and believed in the Messiah, you'll receive forgiveness of sins and I'll baptize you. That's his plan. Same thing for us. When you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you understand He died on the cross, He paid for your sins, and rose again, you trust in Him and Him alone, you have the forgiveness of sins, and then you can come and be baptized, which is your testimony saying to people, I've changed my mind and I've trusted in Christ, and I've received forgiveness of sins. That's what He's doing. Now, this is for the nation of Israel. He's coming to the nation of Israel and telling them their Messiah has come. You're going to notice something that when you study the Gospel of Luke, for the first part of the ministry, it's to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He doesn't go to the Gentiles first. So this message and the message of Jesus is originally to Israel because he's their Messiah and Savior. And so this is what's happening. So he's coming with this message. Notice he describes himself. It says this. As it is written, verse 4, Luke writes this and says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. He says, this is what the prophet talked about. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Luke says, this John is the one that Isaiah talked about. That's Isaiah 40, verses 3, 4, and 5. The voice crying in the wilderness, make the way ready for the Lord. I want you to understand something. In those days, if 
the king was coming, somebody very famous was coming to your town, you would go out of your town, you would go to the roads, you would smooth out the roads, you would fix all the ruts, you might even straighten out the road because when the king comes, you don't want it to be bumpy for the king. You want it to be good for the king. So they would make the way ready for the king. Isaiah is saying, the king is coming. Get the way ready. The king is Jesus. Notice what he says. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Here's what you have to do. He says, every uh, every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will come straight and the rough road smooth. We're getting everything ready for the Messiah. And then look at the next verse. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. All flesh, all the people will see the salvation. I want you to remember something. We talked about it last week. Salvation is in a person. It's not in an event. It's not in religion. It's not in works. It's not in activities. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. Anyone who will believe in Jesus Christ will have eternal life. You trust in Christ, not your baptism, not your works, not your church, not your rituals. You trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life. The people are coming out to John. He's announced, come out, be identified with the king when you have changed your mind and you have the forgiveness of sins. Well, people were coming out. Now, John's a prophet. The gospel of Matthew tells us as they were coming out, John looks at the religious leaders. Now, I want you to understand, some of the religious leaders came out there. Some of the Pharisees came out there and they said, yeah, we'd like to be baptized also. And you can see John saying, why would you want to be baptized? You don't believe. You're not believing in the Messiah. So when the people were coming out, look what he says. He began saying to the crowds, verse 7, who were coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Matthew says he directed that to the religious leaders. He said, who warned you? You're going to come out here and identify with the Messiah when you haven't even believed in Him? How did a Jewish person show that he was a believer? He obeyed the Word. How do we as believers, how do we as Christians show that we are believers? We obey the Word. Look what he tells them to do. He says, therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not say to us, to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. He says, what I want you to do. Now, this is John telling to the religious leaders and many of the Jewish people coming out there. If you want me to baptize you, baptism is only for believers. If you want me to baptize you, show me by your life that you have believed. Because the religious leaders would say, we believe in the Messiah, but they didn't live that way. And so John is saying, you better tell me. I'm not going to baptize you. In fact, who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You vipers. He called them snakes. Notice the key. Some of those people coming out there said, yeah, I, I can get baptized because, see, I'm Jewish. And if I'm Jewish, I'm automatically what? I'm automatically saved. That's what some of them thought. And look what he says. Therefore, bear fruits and keep in repentance and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father. We're Jewish. See, I want you to know, he says, for I say to you that from these rocks, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. He says, look, just being a Jewish person doesn't save you because if God wanted to, he can take rocks and make Jewish people. He can do anything he wants to. 
And some people believe that they're saved because their father was a pastor or their grandfather was a pastor or they've gone to church all their lives or their families are all Christian or they say they're Christians. And you say, well, my mom and daddy are Christians, so that makes me a Christian or my father was a pastor. He's saying it's not your background that saves you. It's faith in Jesus Christ that saves you. Notice there's a judgment coming. Verse 9, indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees so that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He says there's a judgment coming one day. All those who believe will have eternal life. And all those who do not believe, they'll be cut down and separated. That's his picture. That's his picture. He's going to use, Jesus is going to use something a little bit different later on. We're going to see it. The crowds that he believed, some of those did believe, and they came out to John, and they were baptized by John, and some of them came out and said, okay, we want to be baptized by you, we want to show that we believed in the Messiah, what should we do? What do you want us to do? How can we show you? Notice what happened, verse 10. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, what should we do? What do you want us to do, John? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and the man who has food is to do likewise. He said, how do you show that you have believed in the Messiah and that you have forgiveness of sins and you want to be baptized and identified? Well, how do you treat other people? This is what he says. Do, do, you have, do you show generosity? If you got two jackets, do you share with a guy who doesn't have any? And if you got food, do you share with those who don't have food? That's his plan. That's what he says. Show me by your lifestyle that you have believed so that I can identify you with the king. Well, two groups come to him. Two groups that are really despised groups at that time. The tax collectors and the soldiers. Notice first the tax collectors come. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. Now remember, tax collectors were Jewish people. They were Jewish people who worked for the Roman government. Roman government said, you have to collect this much money taxes. Anything you can collect above that, you get to keep. So if they were supposed to collect 10, they would go to somebody and say, you owe 15. They got 15, they gave the Romans 10, they got 5. That's how they exploited the people. They took a lot more than they were supposed to. Jewish people hated them. They were Jewish, but they hated them. So the tax collectors come, and the tax collectors came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what, what do you want us to do? And what did he tell him to do? He said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to do. Do what's right. That's what he said. Now, look, there's another group who comes, the soldiers. Some soldiers are questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? Now, let me explain to you who these soldiers are. These aren't Roman soldiers. See, at the Jewish temple, they were what they called the temple guard. They were Jewish people who were soldiers. When Jesus was arrested, there were temple guards, Jewish soldiers that came out to arrest him. These are Jewish soldiers here. They were to guard the temple and to keep peace among the Jewish people. And so these Jewish soldiers, soldiers looked at him and said, what do you want us to do? And he really gave them three things. He said, first of all, don't take money by force. Now, this is an amazing thing, the way it's written in the Greek. It says, uh, do not take money from anyone by force. But what it literally says is, do not shake anyone violently. You ever heard somebody say, boy, they're shaking them down. They'd go over there and they would grab people and shake them and then take their money and push them away. Because they were... They were stronger. They were powerful. They were soldiers. They had weapons. He says, don't do that to people. Don't take their money away from them. Don't shake them down. The second thing, don't falsely accuse them. Don't say they did something wrong and get them in trouble. Sometimes they would say that people did something wrong, get them in trouble, they'd get put in jail, then they'd take their property away. He says, don't do that. And it was the third thing he told them. He says, be content with your money. Be content with your wages. Bottom line. 
if you're coming to be baptized by John, you have to have believed in the coming Messiah. You have to have the forgiveness of sins. And John says, this is not religion. It's not being Jewish. You better show me from your life that I can believe that you have believed. And then I'll baptize you. That's what he did. That was called the baptism of John. Now we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, Jesus comes out to John to be baptized by him. Why would he do that? And you remember when Jesus came to John to be baptized, John went, whoa, no, 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 no. Let me get baptized by you, Jesus. I I shouldn't baptize you. And Jesus said, yes, you must, in order to fulfill all righteousness. We'll talk about what that means next week, because that's in verses 21 and 22. Look how this ends. Now the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. Some of them were saying, do you think this man is the Messiah and the Savior? What did John already tell them? I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness, get ready for the Messiah. They come to him and say, are you the Messiah? He says, no, I'm not. I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes. We'll see that next time. What have we seen this morning? John begins his ministry in the wilderness, prepare for the Messiah. Luke says he's the Luke says he's the forerunner crying in the wilderness. They come out there. He says, show me you believe. Treat each other with generosity and fairness. And many were wondering whether he really was the Christ. Let me give you some applications. The first one is this. Understand the ministry of John the Baptist. Understand what? He's the forerunner of the Messiah. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Here's what he got to do. He announced the coming of the Messiah, Savior, and King. He was the one who pointed of the way. He said, get everything ready. The promised one of God is coming. He is the Savior and the King. Here's the second thing he did. He identified the believers. Those who believed in the Messiah were baptized, were identified. That's what baptism is for. They had showed that they changed their minds. They believed in the Messiah. And he says, I want to see from your lifestyle. Will you come out here to me, especially you religious leaders who are a brood of vipers who are just fleeing from the wrath. So that's what he did. Second application for us, fulfill our ministry as believers in Jesus Christ. We have trusted Christ as Savior. Guess what? We are ambassadors and we get to announce the coming of Christ. Now, the first coming, He came to die for sins and the second coming, He's coming as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We get to tell people about the Messiah. We get to tell them how how that eternal life is by faith in Jesus. And that takes us to the third one. Trust Christ as Savior. There may be people in this room Because I don't know every one of you. And even some that I do know, I don't know you well enough to know if you have ever believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior. All of us must trust in Christ for eternal life. I want you to know, A, that salvation isn't a person. It's not your goodness. It's not going to church. It's not being baptized. It's not any righteous thing that we try to do. It is in Jesus Christ. And B, it's salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. When you change your mind about whatever you're trusting to get to God and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. It's that simple. The third thing to do is to be identified with Jesus Christ. Identify with Him. That's baptism. Anyone who is trusted in Christ as Savior is to be baptized. It has nothing to do with your salvation, but it is your testimony that you have believed in Jesus. And last but not least, live a life so others can see your faith. Ephesians 2.10 says we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ephesians 4.1 says walk worthy of the calling which you've been called. 
You're to live in such a way that people can see that you belong to Jesus Christ. It's that powerful. May we understand the ministry of John the Baptist. As May we fulfill our ministry as we live godly lives, seeing others come to know Christ and identifying them with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great passage. Thank you, Lord. It's really a hard passage as we see John's ministry. And may we understand he announced the coming of the Messiah, that he identified those believers. He wanted them to live in such a way so that he could tell that they had believed or not. We pray, Lord, that we'll fulfill our ministry, that we get to announce the Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you use us, Lord, as we scatter out in this community to tell others about Jesus? Lord, also... If there's one in this room that has never trusted in Christ, Lord, right where they're sitting right now, we know they can believe in Jesus for eternal life. He is the Savior. Salvation is by faith. I pray that they'll trust in Christ even right now. Thank you, Lord, for those of us who have trusted in Christ. May we identify with Jesus and may we live in such a way that you get all the honor and all the glory and people will see that we belong to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.